should wait to come out, that you should uh, try to gain rank or status before you do that. That's a bunch of bull****. It's a new day in the music industry, and I can reach my fans. We're getting there. I've caused harm to the political agenda, and which I'm actually happy for. I would say probably the best message to them is that they're on the wrong side of history. Whether you're lesbian, gay, bi, transgender, or whatever, love is love. Shout it out to the world. The Michelle Miao Show. Your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And now here's your host, Michelle Miao. Happy, happy Tuesday. Yay, it's Tuesday. <laughs> I'm Michelle Miao, your host. This show is your A through Z covering the LGBT, LMNOP, and everyone in between show. And because it's Tuesday, my favorite day of the week, that means John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. Hello, John. Hello, Michelle. Hello, everybody. So this Tuesday, though, uh, today, it's a big Tuesday. It is. My mother is uh, manning a pole station in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Yay, Mom! She's supervising it, in fact. So my mom is making democracy work. That is so cool. That's yes. awesome. So what what's going on, you know, this... It, explain to us uh, the political world, why today is a big day. Briefly, uh, Wisconsin is, has long been known as the state where when it comes to primaries, they kind of are friendly to the front runner. This time, both front runners are in trouble. They're both currently behind uh, Trump, way behind. Hillary is closer, but I think everyone's kind of expecting uh, Sanders to win in Wisconsin. It's not huge in, in either way. They're then moving on to New York in a couple of weeks. You know, Clinton's ahead and double digits there. Um, and Trump is way ahead, I guess, on the Republican side. But still, you know, it, it, w- it would hurt their sense of momentum and everything to lose in Wisconsin because Wisconsin tends to be a pretty decent bellwether state for where things are going. So it, it's being closely watched, closely followed. And you should like this. Radio is playing a big role in the on the Republican side. Of course, <laughs> radio is controlled by <laughs> Republicans. <laughs> well, well and in particular, yeah, I mean, because conservative talk radio has been going down for a number of years, right? They've been losing listeners, cause, right? You know, people but die sooner or later. You have companies like iHeart and CBS and all those who still believe in conservative radio. Yeah, I didn't say it was gone. I'm just saying <laughs> it's not what it was. And, but in Wisconsin, Donald Trump has been beaten up by. Uh, a number of conservative uh, talk radio folks, Charlie Sykes and some others, and it's been interesting to watch. Because, oh, good, yes. good. That's that's yeah. that's good news. <laughs> so, if, if you ever turn right wing, you can move to Wisconsin, find a good station in Waukesha or something, and, uh, and pontificate. <laughs> right. Pontificate on the morning drive hour right. with Michelle Miao. John Zipper hosts his own show. It's uh, the week-to-week political roundtable talk, and it airs here on the Michelle Miao Show Fridays at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time here on Progressive Voices. So make sure you tune in for John and and, uh, give him some love. Let's get today's uh, (laughs) program started. The show is brought to you by... Pacific Fertility Center. When life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. Our next guest is the executive director of A Wider Bridge, the LGBTQ advocacy group that builds connections between the Israeli and North uh, American LGBTQ communities. Let's welcome Arthur Slepian to the program. Arthur, thanks so much for being with us. 
Hi, Michelle. Thanks so much for having me on your program. Um, so you have big news, and it's actually something that is incredibly exciting, groundbreaking, I should say, um, in that a wider bridge is hosting an event. Um, talk to us about your event. Sure. So we are very excited that we're bringing to the U.S. several of the leaders of an organization called Kala, which is an Israeli organization for LGBTQ Ethiopian Israelis. It's a a group that just got started about 18 months ago in Israel, Uh, a really interesting community that is just starting to find its voice and build community and uh, is facing many challenges in that regard, but they're they're doing great work and we want to help celebrate the work they're doing and uh, help raise their visibility here across the U.S. Arthur, this is a really interesting development, Uh, but can you give us some background on what do what is the Ethiopian Israeli community like? What 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 is its size? How is it different from other groups within Israel? So, we have there are today about one hundred and forty thousand Ethiopians in Israel. Mm-hmm. Um, almost all of them are Jewish, and and most of the community came to Israel in in several waves of state assisted immigration in the nineteen eighties and the nineteen nineties, um, and. Today, I guess about a third of the community are second or third generation Ethiopians, um, and they are a, a minority in the country, and they have they have a lot of challenges in terms of uh, experiencing racial discrimination because of their color um, and socioeconomic upward mobility. Uh, so, uh, so there's so there's a lot of a lot of issues that they need to address overall as a community, uh, and it's also a community that is very traditional and conservative in their attitudes about issues of sexuality and gender. Uh, and so that as, as LGBTQ people inside the community begin to become aware of their own identities and, and want to be able to live authentic lives, both as Ethiopian Israelis and as LGBTQ people, they kind of face this double barrier of, of both some of the discrimination that they face from the broader Israeli society, as well as some of the challenges of trying to change the attitude uh, within their own families and their own communities. And it, 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 is the, the conservatism, conservatism excuse me, of the uh, Israeli-Ethiopian community, is that, I mean, was, is, is that just something brought from Ethiopia? Is Ethiopian community, uh, are the country more conservative socially, or um, are there other traditions that are worked through there? I, I just found that interesting in, in some of the, uh, the reading I did up on this topic of just, the the way they're trying the, these folks you're working with are, are trying to you know get across the message that they can still come out that you know mom dad you know I still care about family and community but um, you know this is who I am so uh, it what are the strains that are kind of going into uh, uh, their background? Yeah, I think I think it's both of the issues that you raise. I think one is that is that Ethiopia the, the country where many of these where these families came from is. Is very conservative with regard to homosexuality. There are, it's almost impossible to really be out and open as an LGBT person in Ethiopia, um, and so there's some of that that got brought over. And also, uh, the Ethiopian Jews tend to be fairly observant and religious Jews, and so they also have, I think, within them the views from from some of the you know, the more orthodox parts of the religion that uh, that don't approve of homosexuality. So, so there's a lot, so there's some, lots of cultural, family, religious, and traditional things kind of all interplaying here that, that make being LGBTQ a special 
challenge inside of the Israeli Ethiopian community. Hmm. Wow. This is like, uh, you know, it's like crossing different types of um, cultural, I guess, you know, in the in the press release, cultural exchange is the right way to describe this. Um, Arthur, I don't know if uh, Israel has asylum um, policies and, you know, and being, as you had just mentioned, LGBTQ in Ethiopia, it's currently illegal. I know you mentioned immigration um, as, you know, uh, in background information earlier, as far as uh, Ethiopian Israelis uh, immigrating in the 80s. But what about current LGBTQ Ethiopians immigrating to Israel? So I think the interesting thing to understand here is that um, these the Ethiopian community came to Israel in these large waves of immigration because they are Jewish. Mm-hmm. And Israel's policy is that anyone who is Jewish is welcome in Israel and as a citizen of the country. And so, um, and so these, so the immigration that brought the uh, that that brought the Ethiopians to Israel was not so much a matter of asylum, but Israel saying that these these folks belong in Israel and that they want to come here, they have every right to do so. Well, and of course, they're, they've come to a country that has the most accepting policies, I think, in the, in the region for LGBTQ folks. But I'm, I'm kind of wondering about are the, the conservative groups, conservative communities within Israel, they've been growing stronger than, uh, faster, I guess, than, than the progressive communities, or at least that's what it seems sometimes following some of the stories. Is that an accurate story? And if accurate uh, depiction, and if so, how do other LGBT groups and other progressives there uh, try to make sure that they just don't get eased out of the, you know, the, the national conversation, the national policy and stuff like that? Sure. Well, sometimes I think, I think, first of all, I think it's sometimes important to understand that what we mean by liberal and conservative or left and right in Israel might be a little bit different than how we think about those things here in the United States. Mm. Um, so for, for example, uh, there are, right now, there are two out gay members of the Israeli parliament, the Knesset. And one is from the Labor Party, but one is from the Likud Party, Benjamin Netanyahu's party. So, so and, and, ne- are, and Netanyahu himself has been quite vocal in support of LGBT rights. Some of the time. Okay. <laughs> I was uh, trying to throw him a bone. His party could do, I wouldn't want to characterize Netanyahu as like a, you know, a, a fervent supporter, but, uh, okay, but he has done many positive things, and, and, and he spoke out very, very strongly and in favor of, of electing Amir Ahana to the Knesset as this LGBT individual. Um, so, so I think sometimes left and right in Israel is more about foreign policy issues and less about social issues. Uh, so, and, and the country, I think, still has a very strong secular democratic tradition and a very strong Supreme Court, and um, many forces in play that uh, that can help to ensure that the rights of the LGBTQ people are protected. Okay. Well, let me t- I want to tell you one story though sure. about about Kala, and that is we ran a, we ran an article about the Yaniv, who's the founder of Kala, about a year ago on our website, and it was the first time that anyone had written anything about Kala about this community in English, and the story made its way to Ethiopia where several LGBT activists read it and, and were really intrigued by the work that Yaniv was doing in Israel. And so they invited him to come to Ethiopia. And so last fall, he made his first trip ever back to Ethiopia 
to meet with some of these very closeted uh, gay leaders who wanted to learn from his experience. That's so incredible. It was, you know, we, we think of ourselves as being in the business of building bridges, and sometimes the bridges happen in the most unexpected ways, and people find community and family in, in places where we might least expect it. Well, talk about some of the bridges you're hoping to build during this visit with them here in the U.S. Is it, will, will they be making connections with Ethiopians in America? Will they be mostly trying to connect with LGBT uh, Americans of, of all stripes? What, what, what are the uh, bridges you're building? Sure. So we're bringing them to five cities across the country, starting here in San Francisco on April 17th. Uh, and then we're, we'll be going to Los Angeles and Chicago and New York and Washington, D.C. And in all of these stops, we, we will give them an opportunity to have you know, a program where, they, where we're inviting leaders from you know, across all of the strands of the LGBT community to meet with them, to hear their story, to learn more about their work, um, hopefully to also help them do a little bit of fundraising. Uh, and and our goal is to have is to have them meet with a sort of a broader range of people in the community as possible to meet with to meet with LGBT people of color here in this country who perhaps are sharing some of the same kinds of challenges and experiences that that they're working through in Israel. Um, just to help them also know to build allies to learn from experiences so that they know that they're even though they might be a small group in Israel that they're not alone and that um, other folks here. You know, care about their struggle and also have a lot to offer them in terms of support of their work. Oh, I, I want to ask uh, so many more questions, but unfortunately we need to take a break. Um, so Arthur, will you stay with us? Absolutely. Don't go away. We'll be right back uh, right after this short, quick break, and we'll continue our conversation with Arthur Slepian. He's the executive director of A Wider Bridge. listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.lgtb.com. 
A-L-E-G-R-E-C-A-R-E.com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here today. I'm Michelle Miao, your host, and it's uh, Tuesday, so that means John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And on the phone is Arthur Slepian. He is the executive director of A Wider Bridge. Arthur, I uh, wanted to follow up on uh, John Zipper's question right before the break. Um, there's this interesting thing that's that's happening in the United States post-marriage equality when it comes to the LGBTQ community. We are we're out, but we're out uh, and coming out in 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 a very you know diverse way. I mean, we're out not just as uh, our sexual orientation or addressing gender identity, but also racially, economically, John said politically, and of course, religiously. Um, how does this impact the work that you do with the wider bridge? And, and you know, and I'm, I'm guessing the takeaway from a groundbreaking event that you're doing with LGBTQ Ethiopian Israelis and bringing them here, you know, far uh, it, it, it expands or exceeds even LGBTQ Jewish people in the United States. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think I think sometimes when people think about Israel's LGBT community, if they think about it at all, I think the image is of gay men on the beach in Tel Aviv. And <laughs> you know, and there are a lot of gay men on the beach in Tel Aviv, and they're often next and in the clubs in Tel Aviv, and many of them are very beautiful. Um, but that surely is not anywhere near the whole story. And part of the work of a wider bridge is that we want to bring really the full tapestry, the full rainbow of Israelis LGBT community to the U.S. and into into connection with the community here. So you know, we have brought transgender leaders from Israel to the U.S. We have brought the leaders of Israel's religious Orthodox LGBT community. We did a program several years ago that was called Israeli Orthodox and Gay, and um, people were surprised that those three words could be strung together in any meaningful way. Uh, and so this this visit of the Ethiopian leaders. Israel is, I think, really just kind of a part of that theme that we want to, we want to celebrate all the aspects of Israel's LGBT community, and particularly where there are communities that really have to you know, have a greater struggle to be out and to and to work to live authentic lives and to be uh, and, and to find a place for themselves in the broader society. Now you're obviously used to then working with different communities and sub communities. Is there anything you've learned as you've gotten to know more of the about the Ethiopian Israeli community LGBTQ community? Anything you learned there that surprised you and, and you started thinking, oh, that's a neat trade. You know, the, the extra things that they will be adding to the wider LGBTQ community as they become more visible. Sure. Well, you know, I think um, I think there are, I think what I've learned is that there are both similarities and differences between their struggle and the struggle of people of color here in this country and particularly the African-American community. Um, you know, when you need, because the people I think you need is often asked about, and the leaders are often asked about how their movements are the same or how they're different. Uh, because there are, some of the, there are some similar issues in Israel, for example, with regard to um, you know, how they're treated by the police, for example, and which look, in some ways can look very similar to some of the things that have happened here in the U.S. of late. Um, but one of the things that they have said to me is that part of what feels different to them is that they would not their families were not brought to Israel as slaves. They were, they were welcomed in Israel as full citizens, and they had enormous pride in their country, 
Uh, and so even, I think, uh, in spite of the many issues that they're working through, um, they have, I think, a, a very strong sense of self and, and, of their, and of their place in Israeli society. Arthur, I wanted to ask this question. I liked what you said in an article I read in, um, you know, being able to have dialogue to address our their similarities and our differences, um, but mainly, you know, accepting our differences and a difference of opinion, by the way, whether that's politically, religiously, um, and start a dialogue for change. Um, I kind of wanted to ask you about that and expand on uh, this idea of at least, you know, starting the conversation in order to promote or, and or create change when it comes to human rights um, around the, the world. Right. Exactly. I think there's, there's so much that we, can, that we can learn from each other. We, we sponsored a, a conference in Israel last summer in Tel Aviv together with the Azuda, which is Israel's leading LGBT human rights organization. And we brought 125 LGBT leaders from around the world, including people from Nigeria and South America and many places in Europe and U.S. and Canada. Uh, and it was remarkable. I think it was the, the, the first time such an event like that had been held in Israel, but also the first time for many of these folks that they were exposed to such a broad range of, of people who are all working for LGBT equality in their different communities. Um, and, there's, and there's so much that we can, that we can learn from each other. And, you know, we've had, as you know, we've been in the press a bit of late because of uh, what the experience that we've had at the Creating Change Conference mm-hmm. in Chicago. And I think, I think one of the more unfortunate things that we're seeing uh, in some parts of our community and, and in general, kind of on some parts of the left of this country, is this idea that if you, if you think that you disagree with somebody, that the right solution is to shut down their program um, rather than to try to engage in dialogue and conversation and to perhaps get to a point where both sides might be able to understand each other a bit more. You're, you're preaching to the choir there, and, and um, there are lots of folks, uh, un, unfortunately, across the spectrum, politically, who when they, it comes to something they don't agree with, and they, especially if they feel a moral uh, superiority, a moral, moral commitment on something, that they have no trouble shutting down things. Um, I, I kind of wanted to take this in the direction of, you know, here in the U.S., we're fighting a number of uh, anti-LGBTQ laws, anti-trans laws in the country. Uh, anything like that in Israel, or are things better off legally and politically there? You know, Israel is is ahead of us in some ways and behind us in other ways. Um, you know, Israel has allowed LGBT people to serve openly in their armed forces for the last 20 years. In fact, um, they just recently promoted their first transgender person to an officer position. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and Israel has had protection and employment for LGBT people, I think, since 1992. Um, on the other hand, Israel still does not really have full marriage equality. They, 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 kind of, they come close in some respects, but there's no, because of the dominance of the religious community in certain, in certain segments of Israeli life, there is no civil marriage in Israel. And so, um, so the struggle for, for civil marriage and same-sex marriage um, is, is an, ongoing, an ongoing struggle inside of Israel. So I think there are, there are both areas in which we can learn from them and in which they can learn from us. Yeah, you mentioned the the Chicago incident. Are what what's happened post that incident? To I mean, can will it happen again? Has it happened again? I mean, what sort of reactions are you getting from people on the other side and people in your group? I mean, what has been some of the fallout from that? And hopefully, again, some bridge building. Yeah. So 
Well, I think one of the most important things is that after Chicago, we took the leaders of Jerusalem Open House to four cities around the country where they were embraced and, and really welcomed and where they got the kind of care and support and love that we were expecting that they were going to receive in Chicago, but, but they did not. Um, we've gotten yeah, a lot of support for, with regard to what happened there. Uh, and also, I've had some very positive conversations with Ray Carey at the National LGBTQ Task Force. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's you know, an organization that we have a lot of respect for, and I think that, that they're doing a lot of soul-searching now and thinking about um, what needs to change at their conference going forward and uh, and how they can sort of, you know, better produce an event that uh, allows everybody to come with their full selves and, uh, and, and celebrate everybody's you know, passions and, and interest in the community um, without having people trying to shut each other down. I'm going to leave it at that, even though, you know, there are lots of questions I would like to ask regarding the creative uh, change, um, because that's not the reason why we brought you onto the, the show. We really wanted to highlight the incredible work that you are doing uh, or a wider bridge in bringing leaders of the Ethiopian Israeli LGBTQ community. Um, before we let you go, uh, Arthur, I just uh, had one last question and in, in going back and letting our listeners know um the cities that you'll be touring and uh, the website for more information. Sure. So we're starting in San Francisco on April 17th and we'll be in Los Angeles beginning on April 20th and then in Chicago on April 25th and then New York April 27th and Washington, D.C. on April 28th. And people can go to awiderbridge.org, awiderbridge.org, and you can find the links there um, to all of the sites where you can register for these events and get tickets. Arthur, thank you so much for joining us here on the program. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, John. It's been a pleasure. Don't go away. The Michelle Meow Show continues right after this. We have another great uh, guest, and we'll be talking about Bernie Sanders and the LGBTQ community. So don't go away. You don't want to miss that. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Like us on Facebook and share us with your friends. Find out more at Facebook.com slash Progressive Voices. The spotlight on success and achievement goes to LGBTQI members of the Bay Area who have demonstrated an incredible amount of success. We're very proud to announce that this month's Spotlight on Success and Achievement is Rick Welts. Well, it's been an unbelievable stretch of time, obviously. Uh, Everything the Warriors have gone through this season, really a magical season that ended in a championship. Uh, And now to to top it off a week later with the opportunity to participate in the Pride Parade in San Francisco, it's, uh, it's a pretty wonderful time. You know, it's been a journey, right? We're all on our own personal journeys, and uh, the last four years has been a remarkable part of my life, but it, it's definitely a part of my life. Uh, you know, the decisions I made four years ago to come out in the way that I did, obviously, you know, I had decided I was signing up for something going forward and being part of the discussion, uh, and, you know, I welcome that. And this is, uh, you know, for me, a real honor to, to be participating in this way. and. 
I guess in, in some ways it, it will be a demonstration of how far professional sports has come in, in a very short period of time, uh, not as far as our society has come, so I think we have a lot to celebrate. Wow, I, I don't think I have any secrets. I don't think I'm that mysterious. You know, I've got a uh, pretty simple life. I like pretty simple things. Uh, you know, I've, I've got a great partner. His name's Todd Gage. Uh, he has two wonderful children, a 14-year-old girl and a 10-year-old boy. I, I uh, got off the parade route, got into a car with them. We drove to Lake Tahoe, and I got to watch 14-year-old girls play four soccer games over the course of the weekend and then drive back to the Bay Area. So that's my idea of an exciting weekend, you know, spending it with the kids and my partner and getting to do, you know, the most basic things that any family would get to do. Spotlight on success and achievement presented by Wells Fargo. Together we'll go far. Hi, I'm Chuck Spence. I'm the owner of the Maui Sunseeker LGBT Resort, and I'm also vice president of Maui Pride. It's not just the only LGBT resort in Maui, it's the only LGBT resort in all of Hawaii, which is really kind of amazing. Maui Sunseeker actually started years and years before I even got involved. I came along as one of the owners a little bit later in, in life. I came to Maui back in 1978 and absolutely loved the island. I fell in love and I thought, this is where I want to live, this is where I want to be. And so from 1978 until 2008, I finally came alive with the dream and bought the Maui Sunseeker because I realized that this would be the next step in my life and um, thought that this would be an ideal situation because I could do something that, that was my own business rather than making money for other people. It's important to have a place where you know you can feel comfortable about yourself, you can feel loved, and you can feel welcomed by everybody. And I think that that's the ambiance that we try to create. And, and that's the message that, that we try to deliver in all of our ads and trying to bring people to Maui, is that you know we're not just an experience on Maui, we're an experience of Maui. When you think back years ago, how closeted we used to be, and you think about how suppressed we were back then to how open and accepting we are now. And, and it's, it's a good progression for society. It's good that people are, are not just you know, tolerating, but appreciating diversity. And that's the message, is that we really need to make sure that, that people appreciate diversity. I think that whoever you are, follow your passion. Follow what you believe in. Follow whether it leads you down the path of art or whether it leads you down a path of business or you know, some other aspect of internet creativity. Um, follow that and, and just be passionate about what you do. Spotlight on Success and Achievement is brought to you by Wells Fargo. Together, we'll go far. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Thank you so much for joining us here on this Tuesday. I'm Michelle Meow, your host. John Zipper of Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our next guest on the phone is Sarah Scanlon, who's the director of LGBTQ outreach for the U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. Sarah, welcome to the program. Hi. Thanks so much for being here with us, and so sorry we're a little late. No, no, it's totally okay. I understand. We're so, actually uh, on the road ourselves. 
Awesome. Um, so, you know, you uh, the organization just put out a press release and a lot of us are, are uh, reacting to the few bills that have passed recently that are anti-LGBTQ. For example, North Carolina's HB2, Mississippi's uh, HB 1523, um, and Missouri's uh, SJR 39. Uh, what is going on? It's a great question. I think what we're seeing is, is a real movement by very conservative folks to put the stake in the ground and declare that there is uh, that they have a religious right to do and say what they please. And I think that um, it's a real travesty what we're seeing. And I think today we saw that the governor of Mississippi signed uh, their bill into law and w- when doing so said that it didn't discriminate against anybody. But I think that when you take the right of uh, county clerks and you say county clerks do not have to issue marriage licenses because of a religious belief or a, a sincerely held religious belief, that that does, in fact, discriminate against folks. And it's a it's a harmful action. So uh, beyond simply opposing these bills, what could um, uh, Senator Sanders or possible President Sanders do to flip some of these state legislatures? Because these are heavily, you know, strongly, very conservatively controlled uh, state legislators. So what's kind of the plan for undoing that? Yeah, so as I was saying, so 2008 was about uh, electing President Obama. And since 2008, what we've seen are, you know, dramatic impacts on people's lives. We've seen Wall Street issues. We've had Wall Street issues. And now what we're seeing is just truly an issue-driven campaign that is not about not just about electing Senator Sanders, but also about addressing real issues that are impacting people's lives. And those issues go, they run the gamut from getting money out of politics to cleaning up Wall Street to uh, verifying and guaranteeing that we can actually hold jobs based on the work that we do and not the, not the gender we identify as or the relationship that we have, Right. Which to, which to me goes directly to Mississippi, to the problem in Mississippi, which is, you know, we have a governor now who signed into law the ability and giving legal cover to state to, to county clerks to discriminate against people based on their sincerely held religious beliefs. And I think, I think the only way we're going to be able to fix that is if we engage more people. I mean, the reality is, is that when you look at the number of people who actually do vote, and you start changing those numbers and you get more people engaged and more people involved, and then you start seeing real change on the local level. So is there a role on the federal level for, for affecting uh, what the states are doing, or is this a state-by-state, community-by-community battle? No, I think there is a role on the federal level, because, and it comes in who we're appointing into the offices that, that impact the role at the local level. Like, we're going to have a number of Supreme Court justices that are going to have to be appointed in this next election, right, after this next election. And we anticipate that it's more than just the one that we're currently trying to get appointed. We're also going to be, you know, putting people into the Justice Department and putting people into the departments that actually hold people to standards. And that's extraordinarily important. And I think that is the role of the federal government, not to intercede in people's lives, but to actually protect them and give them the protections that the Constitution gives them. That's a good point. That's actually a point I make a lot, which is that people often get focused on the president um, and they forget. And, and then they kind of think, OK, well, my person didn't win. Man or woman didn't win. 
um, you know, well, we'll try again next time. But it's all of those other offices that they fill up, all of those regulatory positions that are filled up that yep. affect, you know, uh, who's... A- absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, Sarah, I wanted to go back to a great point that you made in uh, making sure that people, you know, turn out and are active politically. And you mentioned also that Bernie Sanders in his campaign, um, Senator Bernie Sanders, uh, you know, has, has done a great job in terms of pulling people out to be engaged for the first time. I should say that that also uh, it's safe to say that those who are engaged for the first time are also young. Um, You know, talk to us about the uh, the messages that, uh, you know, have been turning out to to try to rally new um, political activists, but also from groups of the most marginalized in this community or I should say this country. So. That's a great thing. That's, that's part of the, when, I'm sorry, I'm bumbling. I'm trying to get to the point real quickly without taking a lot of time. But when you talk to somebody about, about giving them the, the real idea that they can actually graduate from college without insurmountable debt, um, it gives people hope. And when you, when you talk about how uh, you, that we should not be facing uh, large debt for doing something that are that is considered publicly supported, like for instance, publicly supported colleges and universities, then that's I think giving people a real aha kind of moment. My wife and I, when we both graduated, I think combined between us, I think my wife had sixty thousand dollars in debt from getting a PhD. I had twenty thousand dollars in debt um, from getting a, a bachelor's degree, not even a bachelor's degree. Um, so, I mean, between us, starting out in a life like that with that kind of impact is, is, brings tremendous challenges. And it's more than, it's more than um, in some cases, it's more than the amount of money that we paid for our first home. And that is really a stranglehold on a person's ability to move forward in life. So when you would talk about things like that, people are starting to respond. That's why we've gotten so many young kids that are younger kids. I, I don't want to say young kids, but younger people who are yeah. looking to this, right, and old too, <laughs> who are looking at this as a way of actually moving the country forward. Right? Uh, sure. And, go ahead. Go ahead. I was just going to say, okay, then you're, you're of course, the, doing outreach for the, for the campaign for the LGBTQ audience, which, of course, would be mm-hmm. across a bunch of audience uh, uh, ages. Um, what concerns are, do they have? What concerns are they asking about the, both the future of the country and about the campaign? Well, there are a number of different things that are going on, right? So let's talk about let's talk about the first piece, which I think is the overarching piece. Is you know we can now go and get married on Tuesday. The problem is we can get fired on Wednesday um, because of who we married, and that's a huge issue. And I think that. There are a number of people who thought that, you know, well, if we have a marriage, we don't have anything else to fight for. When in reality, if we, if, if we are getting married on Tuesday and getting fired on Wednesday because of who our relationship is with, that is problematic across the board, right? So that's issue number one, is guaranteeing the right for people to hold a job based on their merits and not based on who they're having a relationship with or who, they're, who they identify as, right? What gender they identify as. Now we're seeing this whole crop of new, of new quote-unquote bathroom bills that are basically being used to, to demonize a, an entire community of people who are either gender non-conforming or non-gender or gender or transgender, right? And 
which is ridiculous. And that is that, you know, these marginalized communities that we're talking about don't have the, uh, they, they have political presence, but they don't always necessarily have the political tools at their, at their ability to mm-hmm. fight back against what is happening. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I think that it's really important that we not designate, you know, communities that should be, that shouldn't have the equal support that we, that all of us actually have, um, are entitled to. So I think we're going to see a number of bills that are going to be uh, targeted at breaking up, quote unquote, the gay and lesbian community or making us, or at least pitting us against one another. Um, and I think that's real, really problematic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I, I mean, in my opinion, those are the things that we should be fighting for, things that we should be actually galvanizing against, as well as pushing forward a really progressive economic platform that, that impacts people across the board. This is such a great conversation, and uh, I'm sad, but we have to take a quick break. But, Sarah, can you stay with us as long as Verizon will keep you connected? Sure. (laughs) This conversation will continue. This is a great conversation, especially here for the network, the Progressive Voices Network. So don't go away. Come right back. You're listening to the Progressive Voices channel on TuneIn. Please help us grow. Tell your friends to tune in to Progressive Voices. Find out more at ProgressiveVoices.com. Babe, I think we're ready. We're really doing this. Yeah, I'm ready for our family. So where do we start? (laughs) Starting a family is a team effort, and when life needs a little encouragement, Pacific Fertility Center will be right by your side. As a unified team of the best fertility specialists, guided by the highest ethical standards, Pacific Fertility Center provides patients with compassionate fertility care. Visit PacificFertilityCenter.com. This is a true story about two best friends who fell in love and moved across the country to the city by the bay. After many years of dating, Jen and Jacqueline are now planning their dream wedding. It's a big moment in everyone's life when you say I do, especially when you can make choices for your authentic life and your loved ones too. Congratulations, Jen and Jacqueline. Live your authentic life. A special message brought to you by Weatherford BMW. When asked, 90% of seniors say they want to remain in their own homes as they age. Hello, I'm Charles Symes, owner of Allegra Home Care. Our caregivers have been serving seniors and the aging community for over 20 years. Allegra Home Care is the only Bay Area home care agency that is LGTB certified. Helping LGTB seniors stay at home is our passion. Please visit us at www.ale. G-R-E-C-A-R-E dot com. Allegra Home Care, serving your community. And now, back to the Michelle Meow Show. Welcome back. Happy Tuesday. I'm Michelle Miao, your host. John Zipper of the Commonwealth Club is here with us. And our special guest on the phone is Sarah Scanlon, who's the director of LGBTQ Outreach for Senator Bernie Sanders' presidential campaign. John. Um, So you've got a kind of unique position there. Um, I'm wondering if you ever have contact with the uh, outreach for LGBTQ folks 
from, oh, let's say the Ted Cruz campaign. How's Caitlin doing? <laughs> no, made me laugh. <laughs> so, no, they haven't reached out. We haven't figured out a way to work together yet. That is crazy. <laughs> um, well, actually, on a more serious note, I guess, besides your own role there, uh, tell us about the LGBTQ leadership within the Sanders campaign. I mean, who, who, who's there? How high are they? What power do they have? So What's our a agenda? Great question. We, um, I, I think I can safely say that that there are a significant number of people in the campaign who are actually holding really significant roles. Um, we have the director of our data team is uh, is one of them. We've got we've got people that are in um, in policy positions and in just just. I was really really pleasantly surprised when I was uh, asked to join in this capacity the number of people who came out of the woodwork saying, hey, let's make this a really great program. You know, we want to help do everything we can. And it was from every different, it's like all, all the different organizational structure pieces, people coming forward, whether it was field or politics or um, other outreach teams. I mean, it's really been, it's really been a heartening uh, exercise so far. Tell, if you don't mind, tell us a bit about your own journey to getting into politics. I mean, how and why and, and when did you, you know, go to the dark side, as so many people in America kind of think. They think, oh, politics. You seem energized by what politics can do. What, what, when hey, and how did that happen? It is not the dark side. I've had some very uh, instrumental pieces that have, things that have happened in my life that have actually made me um, really happy to be working in this field. So mm-hmm. I started in the early 90s in Seattle, Washington, fighting against anti-gay legislation that was coming across from Oregon after Prop 9 passed. Yeah. You folks remember that? That was in the early 90s. Um, and then from there, I went into to running campaigns, and then I became a lobbyist and was lobbying on policy issues and helped increase uh, the, both the minimum wage and the living wage for home care workers. And then I moved on to running campaigns in, in a number of different locations to uh, as a union organizer and as a, as a political organizer working for SEIU. Um, and that eventually led me, so I worked in like 18 races in 20 states or 20 races in 18 states. I never can't keep straight. <laughs> but, <laughs> you, you were never straight. People knew it before I did. That I, that, that I tried really. I did. I grew up in Arkansas. I tried to be wow. as straight as I possibly could be. So um, Sarah, I wanted to, make. Um, I wanted to touch on this, you know, the LGBTQ community in this country, when it comes to the presidential election, it seems to be, you know, split, if you will. I don't, I don't know if that's actually true. Um, and, and I wanted to talk to you about just kind of you had mentioned unity in your quote regarding these anti-access bills. Um, but I, I don't I wonder how the split in terms of how we feel politically regarding the two Democratic presidential uh, candidates, how that will impact um, these bills that are looking, you know, they're kind of pass- passing kind of fast. Yeah. So let me just say that, that I really, I like the, can- I love my candidate. I think my candidate is really good candidate. I think Senator Sanders is going to make a fine president at the end of the day when we're working towards uh when we're when we're split, we're only between political parties and not candidates on the Democratic side. We're going to have a powerhouse and be able to actually move a lot of good legislation, because you know it, it be, we're going to have to figure out how we put aside any uh, hurt feelings and any differences and come back together and elect a Democrat to the to the presidency um, in November. I think that's going to that's everybody's everybody's driving force. 
the only thing that drives that that is the difference is who we believe is the truly better person to do that. And when it comes to the gay and lesbian community as a whole, gay and lesbians, bisexual, transgender, queer, questioning the whole gamut, we've seen um, actually I've seen one poll that says that we are in fact split fifty fifty down the line as to who is actually going to be the better person to serve in that capacity. I think that if you're looking at at history. Since 1983, Senator Sanders has been there. He passed the first Pride resolution in Burlington in 1983 and has never stopped being a champion for gay and lesbian, bisexual, and transgender people in his in his uh, services, in his public service. Whether it's been standing up on the floor of the House and calling out a homophobic congressman on the floor of the House or voting against Defense of Marriage Act or voting in favor of overturning Don't Ask, Don't Tell, and voting against Don't Ask, Don't Tell before it was implemented. I mean, these are all things that that we can look to and say, hey, these policies historically have been proven wrong, and we know that moving forward, if we, if, you know, working with Senator Sanders, we're going to have good policies in place for everybody. And, you know, at the end of the day, I can't say that about Ted Cruz or Donald Trump, frankly. <laughs> That's true. Um, we've been talking a lot, well, almost completely about domestic issues. What about uh, international LGBTQ issues? Oh, uh, yeah. You know, the, the president and hey, the secretary of state are often called upon to to say something or do something on, on you know, discrimination elsewhere. So this it's a really great question. I mean, whether we're looking at Uganda or other places, mm-hmm. I think I have a a full faith in the fact that Senator Sanders would stand up and point and say that's that's wrong. I mean, he is a co-sponsor of the Uniting All Families Act, which is uh, an act that brings together uh, families that come from different uh, countries and doesn't allow families to be deported, recognizing LGBTQ families as well, right? So um, I, I, I have full faith that whether it's the State Department talking about the rights of their the rights of people in Uganda and Africa and other locations who are being targeted, um, that or whether it's the rights of somebody who lives in Georgia or Mississippi and they're being targeted. I think that same person is going to be standing up and telling us and saying for us what we need to hear. Oh, now, we, now I've got you? a connection issue. Here we go. There we go. I can <laughs> hear myself now. Jesus, I, the eight is eighteen. Empowering you, that's what it is. She's talking personal power. Um, Sarah, I, I mean, I, this is so great to, just to have you here on the program. I don't know why we haven't had you sooner. I, I think that you should be a reoccurring guest uh, in talking about these issues. I, just a couple more questions before we um, we let you go. Uh, it's interesting though. Uh, we haven't necessarily, you know, mentioned Hillary all too much. Uh, in this conversation, um, uh, maybe we shouldn't, or should we? Well, well, here's the thing: we, I'm, I try to push. If, I mean, I try to really push people in a very positive fashion, right? And at the end of the day, we have a wealth of riches. At the end of the day, I'm going to be pushing hard for Senator Sanders to be elected, and I don't think I have to do that by tearing down anybody else. I think I can just talk about the things that are actually very positive. And, and draw comparisons between what I believe is, a, is, is an experience that actually helps us and moves us forward. Um, and, I, and I don't have to, I, I think we can do it in a way that doesn't denigrate somebody else. Um, at least that's been my experience in life. Well, and, I'm and, sorry if you can hear my daughter in the background. She's starting to, 
actually starting to uh, want us to keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, thank you for for what you just said about you know being able to advocate for your candidate without needing to tear down others. Uh, I certainly would love to see that spirit take hold on Facebook because. It's, it could be a, a very unpleasant place to be sometimes. I've, I've had to turn it off at times. I've really had to sit it down and walk away because, and I've gotten now to the point where I can actually go without looking at it for five hours. At a, and I'm, I really, it has driven me absolutely crazy. I'm from <laughs> Arkansas. You can imagine what I'm seeing on my Facebook feed, sure, sure. right? Um, okay, well, we know that your daughter's in the background. She probably wants to go. So my last question basically is, uh, in just in terms of you know fighting these these bills, um, I think one activist during uh, the Transgender Day of Visibility had said that uh, you know this is part of the process after so much progress that we've made. So we can't we can't you know we can't create the hysteria as well within our community and and just think that we're losing here. Um, we got to now just you know step up, uh, and that's exactly what you've been saying here today. But you, you you've do you feel optimistic? I do. I think I see these as opportunities to organize. I think, I think that we have to look at them in that light. Um, we get dealt blows on a daily basis, and if we allow ourselves to be defeated by them, then the other side wins. So, but if we use them as an opportunity to organize and have conversations, meaningful conversations with one another and with people that we wouldn't necessarily have conversations with otherwise, then we win. And and I think that's how we overcome any uh, any attack. Sarah, thank you so much for joining us here on this program and for queering the burn right here on the Michelle Miao Show. <laughs> no, I like it. I'm going to keep it. Awesome. Come back, and uh, I'm sure we'll have you on plenty of times, especially as we get closer and closer to Election Day. I look forward to it. Awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much. Thank you again to all the listeners out there uh, on right here on the Progressive Voices Network and for those who are tuning in via your TuneIn app. Uh, John Zipper and I co-host the program every Tuesday. So if you like what we do, all of the podcasts are also posted at commonwealthclub.org slash meow. That's right. <laughs> and don't forget to tune into John Zipper's show, which is this Friday at 4 o'clock Pacific Standard Time on the Progressive Voices right here on the Michelle Miao Show. It's his week-to-week political roundtable talk. For everything else, you can head to michellemiao.com. We'll see you tomorrow at the same time. It's tax time, and so we have tax tips for you. I'm so excited to have this program here on the show. I think it's very important for us to speak openly about, you know, our struggles, our finances, and taxes. It can get all so confusing. So we're very lucky to have Block Advisors Maria Rebelta with us. Maria, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you for having me, Michelle. It's like... Free advice. It's so awesome. <laughs> so, you know, some of you may have heard us talking about the uh, earned income tax credit that some people uh, may be missing out on. I want to continue with that conversation and focus on education. I know that there are many different types of credits and deductions when it comes to education. Walk us through a few of those that are commonly overlooked. Okay, yes. So there are so many credits and deductions for education. There's the American Opportunity Credit the lifetime learning credit, and then there's a tuition and fees deduction credit. Those are some of the ones that are overlooked. Well, that, you know, that's a, for, to me, a standard person, I have no idea what that means. So I'm, I'm guessing that each of these types of credits apply to a certain or specific type of person. Yes. The important thing is to plan to maximize the credits throughout your college career. Yes. So about half of taxpayers don't know that they 
can take an education credit maybe the first four years or even if they go to graduate school. So how do you know, like, uh, you know, the American Opportunity Credit, like what, what exactly is that? Like, so that actually has two parts to it. There, if you have no tax liability, this is one that you should definitely file a tax return for. This one has a refundable portion where you can get up to $1,000 back, even with no tax liability. And that's all students? Uh, it doesn't matter where you're at in your education? No, this is actually for the first four years of your education. Okay. After that, we'd have to see if you qualify for the lifetime learning credit or maybe a tuition and fees deduction. And uh, so the lifetime learning credit, that's someone going back into school or? Correct. Yes, this is someone going back and you can get up to $2,000 of credit there. Wow. Yes. Um, and uh, and then finally, I think there was one more that we talked about. Uh, or no, maybe that was just those two. There's a tuition and fees deduction where you can get a deduction of up to $4,000 um, to come off from your income. And that applies to anybody enrolled full time? Yes, yes. Grad students, if you're going back for your MBA, um, everyone. The important thing is just to plan to maximize and see which credit is best for you at this time of your life. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. I didn't know students can also get money back. <laughs> yes, yes. Um, is this something new or, I mean, it's, it's ongoing, but most people kind of don't, you know, like, for example, for me, I don't think that students, not that they don't deserve money back, but I didn't think that, you know, they make enough money to get money back. Exactly. People don't because they maybe sometimes they only work a part-time job or they are below that filing threshold. Um, they don't think they need to file a return and qualify for a credit. But yes, they can. Um, the important thing is to file. File a tax return to see if you qualify and see which one is best for you at that time of your career. Mm -hmm. And what if you're a student and you're tuning in right now and you haven't filed, uh, you didn't file last year, or maybe you filed and you think that you didn't um, take advantage of some of these uh, credits that we're talking about today. Can you go back and change some things? Yes. Almost 50% of taxpayers uh, don't know that they could actually go back and amend prior year returns. So they can actually go back three years. Oh, wow. Um, and we have something called Second Look where we'll, we will actually check these returns for you and amend if needed. That's incredible. So students out there, whether you are, you know, just a first year grad, undergraduate, or you're uh, someone who's jumping back into education, as long as you're a student, it sounds like you can get some money back. So make sure you talk to someone. Uh, and if, again, we're very thankful to have Maria here on the program. Maria, thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having me.